This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Jack Ashby, author of Platypus Matters, The Extraordinary Story of Australian Mammals, published this year by William Collins. Dr. Ashby, welcome to the show. Hi there, Stentor. Um, I'm not actually a doctor, if that's oh, sorry. Uh, something I should say. <laughs> right, I've yeah. given you a promotion there. <laughs> Okay, so to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. So um, I'm a zoologist by training um, with a a particular area of interest in Australian mammals, um, particularly the smaller ones. So um, my my day job is is as assistant director of the University Museum of Zoology in Cambridge, UK. Um, And that involves... Um, managing our collections team who look after uh, our two million specimens from across the world and looking after our visitor services team who are responsible for um, how the you know, how our public experience the museum through our exhibitions, our galleries, all things like that. Um, so that's my day job, but uh, my kind of a big, my, as I said, my big kind of passionate part of zoology is, is Australian mammals. And um, I spend a couple of months of a year, or at least pre-COVID, I'd spend a couple of months a year in Australia on field work. Um, I'm volunteering myself for um, ecological research with environmental NGOs and universities there, so trapping small mammals and letting them go again, answering certain questions. And so I came to write this book kind of combining those um, those two parts of my life, so working with the dead animals in zoology museums and working with live animals out in the field in Australia. Okay. So this book, it's it's about these Australian mammals, and it's also a book kind of about language and about the way that we talk about Australian mammals. So I want to start with a, a simple one, which is, so the, the plural of platypus is platypuses, and you advocate calling their young platypups. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, some people try to be all fancy about it and call them platypi, but um, that's definitely not correct because platypuses 
as Greek roots. So that just means flat foot in, in Greek, which, which to be honest, is kind of the least interesting thing about platypuses, that they have flat feet. But that's what it means. Um, but as it's a Greek um, in origin, if we wanted to go all classical about it, it would be platypodes, because that's how the Greeks pluralize um, U.S., rather than platypi, which is how uh, Romans would in Latin. So yeah, platypodes would be the classical way, but let's just stick with English and say platypuses. And um, yeah, platypups, that's my that's my um, suggestion to the world. There's no real, uh, there's no conventional way of coming up with baby names. Um, platypuses don't have an, an existing baby name. Um, people sometimes use puggle, um, P-U-G-G-L-E, which is... The name of the babies that um, are given to their closest relatives, the echidnas. That's kind of the official name of a baby echidna. So some people give it to platypuses too, because it's obviously a great word. Um, but there's no convention for that. So I think platypuses deserve one of their own. And then um, I suggest platypups. All right. So it's common to hear platypuses and all other Australian animals described as being like weird. Um, so what's what's wrong with that? What's wrong with calling them weird like i mean absolutely like the most common thing you see as you say is is weird i think like weird and wonderful is kind of absolutely ubiquitous in um, natural history documentaries in museums newspaper articles in magazines everything weird and wonderful but um I, i'm sure people use that as a kind of as a kind of celebratory enthusiastic way people are fond of australian mammals but what i've um been looking at what's one of the stories I tell in Platypus Matters is just the history of how uh, these species have been described since the European invasion of Australia in, in the 1770s. Um, and consistently, Europeans have described Australian mammals in a kind of subtly pejorative way. So they're continuously calling them like inferior, lesser mammals, kind of like proto-mammals or lesser beasts, lower mammals. And all these descriptions throughout history are kind of inferring that they're just not as good as um, the mammals from the rest of the world, like placental mammals like us. Um, and I think that has a hangover today in, how we, in, in where this idea that they're kind of weird, strange, curious creatures has come from. Um, and you might say, yeah, well, platypuses are weird, get over it. Um, and the people who say that, but I do think that it's it's a risky thing to do because Australia um, has the worst extinction rate of anywhere on earth. So since since uh, British invaded in, in 1788, more species have gone extinct in Australia than in any other country. In fact, over a third of all mammal extinctions in those 250 years um, have been in Australia, which is which is a pretty big deal. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but. Um, I think it doesn't help if we if we kind of write them off or imply um, through writing them off that they're it's because or partly because they're kind of lesser inferior, which doesn't make any any evolutionary sense. Um, does that make sense? But yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you you make the point a number of times that you know any animal that's alive today is equally evolved as any other animal, even though people will sometimes talk about some of these Australian animals as if they're somehow, you know, living fossils or they're less evolved than uh, placental mammals from other parts of the world. Exactly that. So, yeah, I mean, so there's, for those who don't know, there are, th there are three groups of, of mammal alive today, um, and they are defined by how they reproduce. So the, by far the biggest group um, 
is uh, placental mammals. That's mammals like us. So placental mammals give birth to um, quite large young after a long pregnancy, and then they finish off the baby's development by suckling milk on the teeth. So that's placental mammals. Um, the second biggest group uh, is marsupials, and they do the opposite thing. So they give birth to really, really small young after a really short pregnancy, and then do most of the baby's growth uh, or suckling milk on a teat, often in a pouch. And that's obviously what they're famous for. Um, they're actually not all marsupials have pouches. Um, and then the third group is, is really small. There's just five species. That's the, the platypus and the echidnas. And they are the egg-laying mammals. And so in the history of mammals, um, the very first species would have, ha- would have laid eggs a couple of hundred million years ago. Um, platypuses and echidnas, the egg-laying mammals, or monotremes, um, they've never stopped laying eggs. But they are, as you say, they are equally evolved. They've been, to have got to this point, um, they are as advanced as any other species. Um, but so, but you, I cannot understand when people describe them as kind of a, an ancient group, although that's not the words I would use, because that group split off from other mammals much earlier in, in history than kind of the origins of, of our group. But when people describe marsupials as more primitive, um, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever because marsupials, by definition, are exactly the same age as as marsupials. That's how you know that's how evolution works. It splits in two, and then you've got two branches uh, that are exactly the same age. So marsupials and placental mammals split about 160 million years ago. So we are exactly the same age as kangaroos and koalas. In yeah, the group, sorry, we are exactly the same age as the group that contains um, koalas and kangaroos. Yeah, and you know, to stay with the marsupial uh, example, you kind of describe this reproductive system that marsupials have with the you know giving birth early on and then keeping the young in the pouch as being actually a, a really sophisticated kind of adaptation for reproduction. Can you talk a little bit more about you know how marsupial reproduction works and what's kind of you know useful about that for them? I definitely can because it is is one of the most astonishing things in the natural world uh, for me, the the very start of marsupial life. And that is, so marsupials, as I said, give birth after a really short pregnancy. So in in the case of some of the smaller species, it's like 10, 11 days. So babies are born after less than two weeks. In the biggest species, there's a red kangaroo, it's about 90 kilos. Well, it's a, a big male, it's about 90 kilos. Females are much smaller. They give birth after about five weeks. Even so, after that really short pregnancy, the the baby that's produced is kind of this little tiny pink jelly bean that's just a few millimeters long, um, and a kangaroo maybe a centimeter long, um, half an inch. And despite this kind of really short period for growth, they are born with with really really well developed arms and the kind of musculature. Uh, skeletal system and kind of nervous system capable of moving a significant distance. So they're born um, uh, out of the, you know, when they, they, they're born and they have to climb themselves unaided from the vaginas into the pouch. Um, I said vaginas because actually marsupials can have three vaginas, um, which I can go into if you're, if you're keen. Yeah, come yeah definitely. Um, so... The, uh, if you think about kind of a human reproductive system, you've got the a pair, you know, you've got a pair of ovaries, a pair of fallopian tubes, and they go down into the womb. 
um, in marsupials, the, the kind of half and half pairing carries right on down. So they've got a pair of ovaries like us, a pair of fallopian tubes, but the, but the wombs uh, are continue to be paired. So there's one womb on each side. And then when uh, those two wombs each have a vagina, um, leading down to the cloaca, and so there's two vaginas there, uh, which are there all the time. And then when they give birth, in some species they grow a third vagina, a central one in which to give birth through. And sometimes that can that seals up um, after each birth, uh, and sometimes it just stays there after the first birth. So kangaroos can, well, see, kangaroos have three vaginas. Um, anyway, so they're born from the vagina, then they have to vagina, and they have to climb to the pouch, which, as I say, is amazing because it's it's just a couple of weeks' growth. Um, they can climb a really significant distance, like many, many times their body length. Um, and then they get in the pouch, and not only do they well ha- have well-developed arms, but they have well-developed lips, uh, and they attach themselves to a teat there. And that's a really nifty system because they'll then start growing. If you're a, you know, if you're a 50 kilo kangaroo, female kangaroo that's given birth to something that's maybe like half a gram, that's obviously like a really minimal investment if that's not too much of a kind of callous way of looking at it um the mothers haven't haven't invested a lot in their babies by that point by the time they've finished suckling and they're fully grown obviously they will have invested a huge amount of of energy into producing milk and looking after them carrying them around um at an extraordinary age you can see like you see large kangaroos like three or four feet tall climbing into the pouch of their mothers and like they don't their little arms and legs don't fit in their tails don't fit in they also they all um, stick out, which is kind of funny to watch. But um, why that's a handy adaptation is that in a in a kind of environmentally un- unpredictable place like Australia, so there's a place where there's lots of you know lots of droughts, lots of floods, floods, um, and as well as having predators around. If if the goings gets tough and the mother's life is at risk, basically, it's much much easier. If, as I say emotionally callous to our human sensibilities it's much much easier to kind of put a percent end to proceedings and reach into the pouch and remove the young if, if she has to if her life is at risk and the same if she's being chased by predators um that's up you know it, it's easy to kind of abandon the um the baby to save her own life but there will come a point in the pregnancy obviously not in the pregnancy she's not pregnant anymore it's in the pouch in the in the baby's life when obviously she has invested a huge amount of 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 resources, so making that kind of decision, if that's the right word, will, will be a much less likely thing to happen. So that I mean, it's, it's a sensible system. I could keep talking, like I could keep talking about what some other species do. Um, and a species I work with a lot of Tasmanian devils and quolls, which are their kind of spotty mongoose-like relatives. Um, they they have a really nifty system that builds on what kangaroos do. Uh, in that it kind of ends the same way, but they get there in a different way. So kangaroos only give birth to one baby at a time. Um, in fact, before I move on to devils, the other cool thing about kangaroos is they only give birth to one baby at a time, but they can actually be, most of them can be um, kind of caring for three at different ages at once. So they have this conveyor belt uh, reproduction system where they've got a newborn baby in the pouch, tiny little one that's suckling on one teat that is... Um, producing you know newborn age appropriate milk um, then they'll have another baby that's outside the pouch that keeps uh, sticking its head in periodically um, to feed on a different teat that produces different milk so they can have two the two of their teats can produce different milk at the same time and then inside one of her wombs she'll have a third baby that 
uh, was fertilized soon, like, so they mate soon after they've given birth. So then there's a third baby, but they've actually paused the development of that baby. So they, they reproduce, they mate, uh, fertilize an egg, and then that egg, fertilized egg, is paused in suspended animation, um, waiting for a teat to free up. So one and one of the other, when one of the um, when the young at first, the one outside the, t- the pouch um, is weaned, or perhaps if if the other baby dies uh, and a teat becomes free, they'll hit the play button on that embryo developing in the womb and, and um, kind of kickstart its growth and then give birth and continue on that that endless conveyor belt, um, especially when times are good. And in fact, there's one species, uh, the swamp wallaby from southeastern Australia, that um, goes one step further and has another baby in her other womb at a different age. Um, so those species, that species is never, throughout their entire reproductive life, they are never not um, simultaneously lactating and pregnant, which is pretty extraordinary. It might not sound like a very attractive proposition, but um, it means that they can reproduce kind of endlessly if times are good. But back to those Tasmanian devils. So they they um, do they end up in a similar place, but they start start off their story in a different way, and that's they give birth to about twenty or twenty five babies. Um, that again, weigh just kind of a, a fraction of a gram. Absolutely tiny little pink worm like things, and that system kind of um, is kind of similar to a lot of species, a lot of different non-mammal animals that produce loads and loads of babies kind of playing the odds game in the hope that some of them um, will survive. So if you think like, you know, frog spawn or toad spawn in a garden pond, they're producing tons and tons of babies, um, but most of them will die. Uh, But just for the fact that they've produced loads, um, then they don't care for them. But, you know, by chance, a small number will survive. So Tasmanian devils and quolls, do something similar at the start of their system where they produce these 20 or 30 young but they've only got four teats so they can only actually well devils only have four teats quolls have um, six or eight um so they can only produce they can only actually raise four or six or eight or the same number of teats they have young because the babies attach to them um continuously so uh they're playing this odds game where they're betting that some of the babies won't survive the journey to the pouch um, and indeed, when we catch um, these these devils after they've been given birth, we often find that there are some empty teats because they haven't even, even though they've given birth to 20, um, four of them haven't made it. And then once they're in the pouch and they've attached to the young, they attach to the teats, they've, um, they kind of play this, this kind of more um, familiar mammal strategy of investing heavily in a small number of young. So they kind of go from the frog odds-based system to the mammal and bird kind of high investment systems. So they're playing both games, which I think is kind of evolutionary genius. Yeah, yeah. So one of the big arguments that you make in the book is that some of these ways that we talk about Australian mammals in kind of disparaging terms as being, you know, primitive and, and weird is tied into colonialism. So can you make that connection for us? How is this, uh, you know, an expression of or... or contributing to colonialism when we describe Australian mammals as weird or primitive? Sure. The first thing I'll say is that I'm, I'm convinced it's, it's throughout time it's been accidental or subconscious, if you like. But what's happening or what happened in the 19th and late 18th centuries and, and throughout the, you know, more recent times 
is that European scientists and and Australian settler colonists um, are encountering species that are completely unlike anything they've encountered before. In the main, um, I should say that about half of Australian mammals are rodents and bats, so they are much more familiar um, to Europeans. Um, but what happened is that they found this bunch of animals, egg-laying mammals and, and marsupials, that were so so unfamiliar. And rather than go about describing them in kind of relatively um, objective terms that uh, kind of just described how, you know, they are amazing animals, how, how amazing they are, they described them in relation to uh, known placental kind of northern hemisphere uh, animals. Um, and in doing so, they took those kind of familiar animals as the zoological standard. And by saying that the Australian mammals were different to them they impl- and inferior to them, they implied uh, that they didn't meet this standard and therefore were kind of lesser. And throughout, uh, and throughout history, it's, it's, it's constant where they're, they're just being inaccurately described as kind of not quite living up to the standards of, Austra- of um, non-Australian mammals, which, which doesn't make any sense. And we continue, I think we've, we've inherited this um, today in, in, in how we talk about them, as I said, kind of in some weird and wonderful ways. But um, what I don't think was happening was that they were doing this on purpose. But the, the way it ties into colonialism is that um, at the time of the invasion, the, it was justified, the invasion was justified uh, and the kind of dispossession of Aboriginal Australians of their land and their sovereignty um, was, was justified using this legal notion of terra nullius, which means no one's land. Uh, and the idea was that um, the argument they made, a thoroughly racist argument, was that Australian uh, Indigenous Australian people were uh, too uncivilised um, to own their land. So they're described as kind of hunter-gatherers, um, which didn't manage land. Now, we know that in, in large parts of Australia that people um, were not, uh, simply hunter-gatherers, but also I should point out that being hunter-gatherers isn't a kind of primitive lifestyle. It's you know there's nothing there's nothing inferior about being a, a being a hunter-gatherer. But what they did at the same time is they're they're writing off um, First Nations Australian people as being primitive, and this is very much tied uh, or entangled with how they're also describing uh, the animals that they encountered as being primitive and uncivilized. And I think it, it kind of this collective notion of primitivity helped them justify the invasion, helped them justify dispossession and and kind of follow through on the on the terra nullius argument. Um, and I'm not as I say, I'm not saying that they that someone sat around deliberately saying, you know what, if we write off these animals, uh, then it will make the um the invasion and, and settlement sound more plausible. But but it did make life a lot easier for them. Yeah, and so you talk a lot about some of these uh, early European and and white settler scientists who are trying to make sense of these unfamiliar animals and some of the these debates they had about you know the some basic biological features of uh, these animals and some of these people are, are interesting characters. Um, so I wanted to ask you about uh, at least one of them, um, which was William Hay Caldwell, who kind of finally settled the 
the debate among Europeans, at least, about whether platypuses lay eggs. Uh, so you can can you talk a little bit about who he was, what he did, and how he kind of illustrates the way that science was being done by Europeans in Australia? Absolutely, yeah. He's, he's someone I've been talking about a lot lately because we've just made some really cool discoveries about him, which I can tell you about. That. But Caldwell, as you say, he was the one that provided the definitive proof that Europeans were willing to accept that, in fact, some mammals lay eggs. So we now know platypuses and echidnas lay eggs, and it's down to Caldwell that we know that. Um, That happened in 1884. Platypuses and echidnas were first described by Europeans in the 1790s. But in the 1890 years in between, a debate was raging about whether it could be possible that something like us, like a mammal, um, could lay eggs. And And that... is surprising that it took 80 or 90 years to demonstrate this because you'd think it was fairly straightforward um, and unsurprising. So, I mean, people with Europeans were sent to Australia, including Caldwell, but several before him, with the specific kind of instruction to solve the, the egg-laying mammal mystery. And, and settler naturalists uh, who moved over there were working on it for many of those decades, and many of them... As you would be, as you wouldn't be surprised to hear, asked uh, Aboriginal Australians, "Do platypuses and echidnas lay eggs?" And of course, they said, "Yes, they do." Um, and unfortunately, that information was either dismissed or ignored by scientists back in Europe. And so was any piece of evidence that Australian-based European uh, naturalists any evidence that they found or any kind of reports that they said platypus and echidnas lay eggs, um, that was all dismissed and ignored or explained away in relatively um, kind of nonsensical arguments for why they ignored it. So enter William Caldwell. He was, I'm, I'm talking to you from the University of Cambridge. He was uh, based here as a recent graduate, um, uh, a university demonstrator. Um, he was working under the, the mentorship of a, of an embryologist called um, Francis um, Maitland Balfour. And Balfour had, this is in the 1880s, uh, Balfour had been um, kind of uh, talked up as being the, the, the next Darwin. He was um, kind of founded the, the science of comparative embryology, which is looking at different animals' embryos and kind of explaining why they're different or why the same based, they're the same based on their evolutionary histories and their lives, lifestyles. Um, so... Balfour was a shining light, kind of primed to take over uh, kind of the, the Darwinian mantle. Um, but unfortunately, he caught typhoid in 1882. And as part of his um, part of his kind of rehabilitation, getting better from, from typhoid, he decided to climb an unscaled peak on Mont Blanc, which is the highest mountain in Europe. Now, um, I've had typhoid. It's quite debilitating. And part of my rehabilitation did not involve climbing the unscaled peak of a, <laughs> of a high mountain, but that's the kind of guy Balfour was. Uh, so he climbed up there uh, and fell off in July 1882. So he died um, tragically. Uh, and kind of the good thing that came out of that story is, is that, that the university created an endowment called the Balfour, Balfour Studentship to honour him um, and Caldwell was the first recipient of this studentship. It's still around today uh, in my department. Um, and before he died, Balfour had told Caldwell, why don't you spend some time in Australia and kind of really go for this egg-laying mammal uh, 
conundrum and find the answer. So with a load of money for the University of Cambridge, a load of money from the Royal Society and from the British government, and with all these letters of kind of diplomatic introduction to the governors of uh, New South Wales, of Victoria and Queensland, um, Corbell arrives in 1883 to, to answer this question. And he, after a little while, he, um, he employs initially about 50 Waka Waka indigenous people in Queensland to catch platypuses and echidnas, which is uh, it's a, that's a pretty a large kind of army of people uh, kind of setting assault on the native population of, of egg-laying mammals. Um, and uh, in August 1884, they caught, for Cordwell, a, initially an echidna with one egg in her pouch, and then the week after, a platypus with an egg in her nest and another about to be laid inside her body. And this was the smoking gun um, that the kind of the world was waiting for. And Caldwell, um, Caldwell telegrammed um, from the bush, which is extraordinary, telegrammed a meeting of the British, British Association for the Advancement of Science in Montreal and kind of made clear the news that egg that some mammals in do lay eggs indeed do lay eggs and that was said to be the most important scientific telegram ever sent under the under the sea cables um and and finally the world was willing to accept it and i think what's interesting there is that they were only willing to accept this information when it came from kind of an emissary from the great imperial monoliths of the university of cambridge and the royal society and the british government they weren't it wasn't coming from an Australian-based uh, naturalist. It was coming from someone that they'd sent over, and that is when they decided that the evidence was kind of uh, incontrovertible. And it kind of demonstrates this this kind of well-established idea of colonial science, and that is that people out in the colonies are allowed to do the kind of physical labour, collecting specimens and things like that. But it's up to the European uh, scientists who can do the intellectual labour, um, and it was only when uh, it was a, one of the Europeans I just go over that they kind of allowed that to to come through. Does that make sense of what I'm saying here? That, that, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was interesting reading, too. Uh, he had, as you said, like this huge number of Aboriginal people that he was paying like just enough to keep them going to yeah, gather really all of these specimens. It's really dodgy what he did. Um, so I should say, after, so after he found those kind of smoking gun specimens, he then employed 150 people um, to uh, to try and create the complete developmental series um, for how egg-laying mammals and marsupials and lungfish, in fact, how they develop from fertilized egg up to adolescence. But yeah, as you say, the kind of the economy that he created was was pretty dodgy. So. I mean, on, on the plus side, he did pay these people for their specimens, which is something that not every uh, colonial scientist did. But the way he did it was pretty unethical. So he would pay them half a crown per female echidna. And they collected something like 1,400 echidnas over the space of a few months. Um, and, and that is like what that must have done to the local population. I have no idea because, you know, echidnas are pretty widespread, but I've never seen any number uh, in that sort of density. Anyway, they, they killed 1,400 of them. But what he would do is he'd pay them half a crown. But because they were kind of very much in remote uh, central Queensland, there can't have been many places for the indigenous people to spend that money. And so they ended up spending it back on William Caldwell. So he sold them flour and sugar and tea. But what he said he did, did was keep changing the price 
of uh, the flour and the sugar in the tea to maintain the supply. So if he was kind of running thin, he would make, you know, he would give them more. If he had too many, he would, he would give them less. So he kind of created an economy just out of echidnas, but he didn't keep, a, you know, a flat a flat rate. They were they were kind of being hard done by much of the time by changing the value of the echidna. Yeah, that's like, that's some, some devious capitalism going on there um, in the service of science. Um, so then another uh, thing that's often said about wildlife in Australia is that it all wants to kill you. Uh, and so that's another factoid that you, you take on in the book. So what's wrong with this, this meme, I guess, that, that all of Australia's animals want to kill you? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a total meme. And it's a, it's a meme that I think Australians are pretty pleased with as well, you know, that it's something to kind of scare the tourists with, but it's also kind of, I guess, makes them feel a little bit more adventurous. Um, and, and no doubt, Australia has its fair share of, of uh, dangerous animals. It's got, you know, there's no denying just how venomous some of the snakes are. They've got some some pretty nasty spiders, centipedes, ants, octopuses, stingrays. Tree, some of the trees are venomous. Um, so yeah, I'm not saying they're not dangerous. However, there's a couple of things to say about this, and one is that almost nobody dies of um, animal bites, venomous animal bites in Australia. Um, like all of them, tragic, but a, a very small number a year. In fact. More people die from bee stings than snake bite. And bees, uh, and so the native bees in Australia don't have a sting, so they're the ones that they're being stung by are feral European bees that have been introduced. So very few people die compared to the tens of thousands of people that die from snake bite in South America, in Asia, in Africa. So and that, that's a significant reason for that is because of the medicine available and also education available in Australia. But kind of the slightly more... I think a significant thing to say about Australian wildlife is, yeah, it has those venomous animals, but it doesn't have any of the large dangerous animals that we find in any other parts of the world. So all of those animals I listed uh, that are venomous in Australia are also found in pretty much every other place outside of Europe. Um, So, you know, everywhere has venomous snakes and venomous uh, spiders, centipedes, uh, ants, things like that. But in addition, all of those other places also have large, dangerous carnivores, so bears and cats, and and also large, dangerous herbivores, like large buffalo. Uh, And so that that makes Australia a relatively safe place in terms of um, the dangerous wildlife you're likely to encounter. And I think, again, this idea that everything in Australia is trying to kill you, it doesn't stack up when you think about any other continent except perhaps Europe, although there are some dangerous animals in Europe. just not as many as elsewhere. And it's just, I think, part of this idea, again, that Australia is just a little bit uncivilized. It's just another kind of way that the wildlife is used to add to this colonial notion of of inferiority and kind of savageness. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and uh, having gotten a bad case of poison ivy a couple of years ago, I can uh, I can say we have some trees trying to kill you here in North America as well. Yeah, Yeah, I've, I've... I've learned to be very careful in the woods. Um, so I know a lot of people are worried about the impacts of things like climate change and the bushfires, like the huge ones, 2019 to 2020 that uh, Australia had and the, the impacts this is having on uh, Australia's mammal population. So how worried should we be about 
these kind of things? Well, I'm unfortunately pretty worried. There's no real way of, of spinning it. There's like there's there's so many threats in Australia that is is driving this extinction crisis. Um, so yeah, as you say, climate change, bushfires, um, which are obviously those two things are interrelated, um, and other ways that that the climate that the fire history of Australia has changed since um, Indigenous dispossession. Um, there's also kind of the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, threat is introduced predators. So Europeans introduced cats and foxes to Australia, um, which have eaten most things um, that are around, uh, as well as other introduced animals, introduced herbivores. So there's feral cattle, there's feral deer, there's feral camels, there's feral rabbits, there's feral pigs, there's feral donkeys, uh, there's feral buffalo, um, feral goats. Uh, plus all of the kind of domestic animals, the farmed livestock, cows and cows and goats and, and sheep across Australia. Um, there's, there's so many, and, and an extraordinary level of land clearing, like the way that agriculture, uh, extractive industries like mining um, uh, and energy production, uh, and obviously like just urbanisation, have, have clear-failed Australia is, is, and continue to, is pretty astonishing. But kind of the the overriding theme of this is that Australia's governments have been have been pretty poor in prioritising conservation. There is amazing conservation work going in on us across Australia. What conservationists are able to achieve in in kind of propping up surviving wildlife is extraordinary. But it's done against the backdrop of kind of really limited federal support. The um, the kind of environmental protection legislation is is completely toothless in Australia. There's no legal requirement to protect legal species, uh, threatened species in Australia, which is surprising. Um, it's pretty worrying. And there's, you know, the day we're recording is the day before a uh, general election in Australia. Um, but neither of the um, kind of the two main parties uh, prioritising climate change or environmental measures, which is which is worrying. And I, and I say there are many reasons for this, and you know, most of them colonial in nature because it's about resource extraction but um i just don't think it helps to keep calling them weird and, and wonderful um I'm not, i don't think that is the cause but i'm saying is it doesn't help kind of convince governments to take things seriously if if people might look at koalas or platypuses or echidnas um and think oh they're just kind of these weird little uh, evolutionary dead ends that we like them a lot but they don't really fit in this world they're not really Kind of advanced enough to um, to survive the pressures of the modern world, which which doesn't make any sense. Obviously, cut cut a cut a koala's tree down and then blame it for dying is is pretty stupid. But um, that, that's that's the kind of the the kind of not very lighthearted kind of chapter on the book is is how all these things come together and to leave a pretty worrying state of affairs for Australian wildlife. All right, uh, so to kind of start wrapping up things here i'd like to do kind of a, a lightning round uh here um so i'm gonna gonna name a few australian mammals and ask you to share you know, one one cool or interesting fact <laughs> about them that we haven't heard yet in the, the, the spot here yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah just you know one thing that you think is interesting about about each one that we haven't mentioned yet so we'll start uh, of course with the platypus 
Um, I guess what's amazing, like one of the most amazing things about many, many amazing things about them. The one I'll go for is that um, they can detect electricity. So they're one of a tiny handful of mammals um, that can detect the electrical impulses that are given off by the um, kind of the nervous control of muscles in their prey. So as I'm sure we all know, um, every muscular movement in the animal kingdom is controlled by a little electrical impulse running down our nerves. And when platypuses go underwater, they close, and close up their ears and their eyes and their nostrils, and they can then sense the world in those electrical impulses from their prey, including their prey's heartbeats. And that's how they can catch almost their entire body weight in food every day. Um, pretty much almost nothing else can do that. There's one species of dolphin that can do that and echidnas are slightly electroreceptive because they evolved from platypuses. But that's it, amazing. Okay, so how about echidnas? Echidnas, so they're also slightly electroreceptive, but my favorite thing about them is what they can do with their hands. So echidnas got massive forefeet, massive you know, front legs, um, four claws, and their back feet have got these long curved claws and they actually, their back feet point backwards. Um, and what they do when they're scared is shimmy in like jazz hands with all four feet at once. And that drills like a handheld, like four handheld blenders that drills vertically down into the ground. And with like what appears nothing more than a shimmy, they just like bury themselves vertically, um, leaving just a, a kind of a sheet of really, really thick spines at surface level. So they're, they then lock themselves into the soil. It's absolutely impossible for a predator to get at them. Um, and it's just amazing to watch them do this, just like disappear vertically uh, below ground, like some kind of, um, kind of trigger drill. Sorry, I'm almost trying to say uh, digger drill um, going downwards. They're great. Okay. How about wombats? Wombats, my second favorite animal. Um, Many things to say about them. I guess people's favorite fact about wombats is that they, they poop cubes, um, which is it's only just been discovered how they do it. But you go into wombat habitat, you'll see these kind of perfect inch-sided cubes everywhere of poop. And and I guess how they do it is is people. It's not to do because it's not because they have a square anus. They don't. Um, but what they do just been discovered as i say uh, they have bands of different flexible flexible um, tissue throughout their intestines and when so they alternate bands of of flexible uh, tissue with stiff tissue and when that is compressed and the poo is compressed inside that it produces uh, poo with edges with corners um, and that's how they create it i guess the question is why um, so what they when you walk around and you see these poops they are on top of things. They they poo on noticeable structures in their um, territories, uh, and that is to kind of help them map map out in scent uh, their home ranges. Um, and if you poo on a boulder, uh, and your poop is cubic, it won't roll off. So it's it's a pretty nifty trick. Okay, then how about the Tasmanian devil? Um, that was what I told you about how they reproduce. Um, but I guess what's uh, another thing to say is, well, it's a sad story. They are they are um, currently being absolutely decimated by a, a contagious cancer. So they've got something called devil facial tumor disease, which I've been um, supporting the University of Tasmania and researching 
about 12 years. Um, so devils are really, really aggressive towards each other. Um, so whenever they kind of meet uh, at a carcass or perhaps while they're mating, they'll bite each other. And unfortunately, the disease has kind of exploited this so that um, a devil will have a facial tumor on its face. When it bites another devil, uh, the cancer cells can get stuck on the second devil and start growing into a new tumor. So the cancer cell is the pathogen itself, which is which is really unusual in the animal kingdom. There are very few contagious cancers. Devils have got one. So that's, um, I mean, that's a sad one. I guess a more upbeat one is they've got the strongest bite force of any animal, of any mammal at least, um, alive today. They're pretty um, bitey, which when we're studying them and looking for tumors inside their mouths, I guess it's a little bit risky, but they're, fortunately they go all floppy when you handle them, if you're a person. Not that I would recommend sticking your hand in a devil's mouth. Um, for right, that <laughs> okay. Uh, and then last, uh, we've mentioned that Australia does have uh, a number of native placental mammals, uh, a lot of which are rodents. So can you give us a, an interesting fact about uh, some of the, the rats and mice of Australia? Yeah, they've got some really cool rodents that kind of fill um, niches that you might find different animals in the rest of the world. So they've got kind of monkey versions of rodents they've got otter versions of rodents and um, they've got kind of a hop they've got kind of little hopping rodents like uh like tiny kangaroos but also like tiny jabos or kangaroo rats um that you have in north america incidentally kangaroo rats are one of the only non-australian animals that are named after an australian animal um obviously named after kangaroos but i guess my favorite australian rodent if i'm pushed is called a stick nest rat um, there were two species of them, but now one of them extinct, is extinct and the other one's super rare. But these stick nest rats build kind of these mansions out of foot-long sticks. So they, they you come across in um, central deserts, you can come across these kind of one to two meter tall uh, mounds of sticks that are a couple of meters wide that a couple of families of stick nest rats live in and they glue them together um, with their urine. And so they are absolutely solid structures. They can last for hundreds of years. Like, so you still find these nests in habitats that the species have disappeared from a um, hundred years ago. But that, like, like there are these little tiny rodent, well, they're not tiny, they're kind of foot-long rodent architects. Um, so they're cool. Yeah, so I have to share my own story about stick nest rats, uh, actually. Um, so I did a semester abroad at the University of Wollongong in, in New South Wales, and I took an archaeology course. And um, you can actually use the stick nest rat nests to date archaeological sites. Um, and so I, I came into class one day, and the professor had some different artifacts out on the, the table. And there was one that was like this like shiny black rock and I, I picked it up and I was like what's this and she said well that's stick nest rat urine <laughs> I was holding this giant thing in my hand and put it down very quickly and, and went and washed my hands <laughs> okay. uh, so we always like to end our interviews by asking what you're working on next so what's your next project now that this book is out um, I guess it's quite similar but I've, I've recently started a, a fellowship studying the colonial history of our Australian mammal collections here at the University Museum of Zoology in Cambridge. So we have um, you know, a great collection of Australian mammals here um, in, in the museum. And I'm trying to understand um, their, their, their true histories, if you like. So they've, they've all got a you know a white guy attached to them um, as the collector, but it's in many cases, it's almost impossible 
that um, that person could have actually collected these specimens. You know, like this, marsupial moles are tiny subterranean um, marsupials that look a lot like moles. Um, and we have a collection um, that was made by Edward Sterling, who described the species. And I think it's it's kind of impossible that he could have gone to Central Australia and found this animal without some indigenous uh, labor. So I'm trying to kind of uncover the you know, greater diversity of people that were responsible for kind of major discoveries in the history of science that so far haven't been um, given the credit they deserve. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. All right. Well, that sounds really interesting. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You just heard a conversation with Jack Ashby, author of Platypus Matters, The Extraordinary Story of Australian Mammals, published this year by William Collins.